Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are. Slightly different studio setup, so if we sound different, hopefully better, that's because we're experimenting with a little bit of new technology. It's our way of saying goodbye to 2015. Yes, bringing in the new year with a new setup. So, Bill, on what will we reflect Today. Well, we have been watching the controversy at Wheaton College. It's become a national discussion. Um, don't really, we're not really, th- I mean, not really that interested in the details of the Wheaton problem. That's kind of an internal academic uh, issue with them. But the issues that came out of it was about a professor to show solidarity with Muslims during this time of. Um, tension and uh, increased discrimination against Muslims uh, because of, I think, the fear, not because of, I don't think, but it's direct reaction to the fear of uh, extremist Muslims and terrorist attacks and such, that a Christian professor uh, wore a Muslim headdress, was going to wear that during Advent uh, to show her solidarity with Muslims. And Her name, by the way, is Larisha Hawkins, and she was a, she is a professor of political science at Wheaton. Still is a professor. She's on administrative leave. She's on administrative leave, right. <laughs> and um, it seemed like the biggest problem was not so much her wearing the headdress, but saying that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And that was interpreted by the, I guess, the administration as contravening her the faith statement that she and all the faculty signed, or potentially, potentially, yeah, yeah, it's all still being discussed. But as you can imagine, it uh, you know sound bites got taken from it, and though I, I think it is an, an important and uh, an interesting discussion, and I think one that may be very critical given uh, the times we live in. Yeah, I think that's. I think yeah, I think on one level. I think one of the biggest challenges we have just geopolitically in the United States is how to think about Islamic extremism, how it relates to the wider Islamic world, how, like you know what the religious motivations are behind some of the, some groups like ISIS. I, I just I don't think I, I mean it seems like you've got a group of people traditionally mostly on the right, although not mostly on the right who they paint with an incredibly broad brush and, and, and characterize Islam in general probably unfairly as, as extremists and whatnot. And then on the left generally, it's, it's people almost go to great pains to, to not consider religion. You know, it, it's as if talking about the theology behind certain Islamic groups who are maybe, you know, 
opponents of Israel or the United States or the West in general. That, that's it. That it's it sort of prickles their multicultural conscience, and they they, they just talk in ways that seem like they don't take their religion and its claims seriously enough, which is what I think you have to do to have a nuanced picture. Yeah, I, I think they don't do well with, that group doesn't do well with religion in general. Yeah, that's know, true. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we've mentioned in previous podcast, uh, now you and I know a little bit about Islam from a couple of different directions. Uh, we both have been engaged in the subject. Um, and uh, I have some Muslims, a friend, I would, friends may be stretching because I haven't spent that much time with them, but people that I consider colleagues and who I respect. Um, but um, to me, the, one of the things that I think is maybe maybe most apropos uh, for um, this forum is the idea, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And how would we even begin to approach <laughs> discussing that? Yeah, Miroslav Volf wrote a piece in the Washington Post in response to all this, which we'll put in the show notes. But he, he, and, and some of it's summarizing in very brief form a book he wrote called Allah, which deals with this question. Mm-hmm. Do, so, and he, he thinks it, one of the things he points to is Judaism. And despite Jewish Christian tensions over the centuries, which thank God have improved a lot in the, in the 20th century. Uh, that despite tensions, that it's never the tradition has never wanted to say that Christians don't worship the God of Israel, and so with this, that it's not been hard to say Jews and Christians worship the same God. So he kind of builds on that and attempts to show why, even though Muslims don't believe in the incarnation or the Trinity, that in in the incarnation of God in the flesh as as Jesus or that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even though Muslims don't believe that, neither do Jews, and most Christian theologians, even very conservative ones, would want to say that Jews and Christians worship the same God. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Allah has been made of the Abrahamic faiths, and I think sometimes it's been kind of simplistic because Abraham functions in, in three very different ways, I think, in the three major monotheistic religions. But having said that, from a biblical perspective, all right, then you would have to say that Abraham is, is not, you wouldn't have to say, but if, you know, if the biblical record has any kind of semblance to any kind of historical reality, which is a whole other question, but let's just take it at face value, then both Arabs and Jews are descendants of Abraham, biologically, and Christians are by adoption in a, in a particular way. And I think that adoption, I mean, at least by a theological adoption, according to Paul in Romans and in Galatians. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is, uh, you know, I think we could all be part of the Friends of Jethro movement. Uh, you know, there's, you know what's, Jethro's worshiping uh, Yahweh in some ways or the well, other. Jethro's Moses's. Father-in-law, right, and there's so there's some thinking that this kind of monotheistic ideas were present there on the you know, Arabian Peninsula, and so that there is even a maybe a different stream other than the Abraham Moses stream to monotheism. I, that's there's been some work done on that. Uh, um, I, again, I don't know, but that but Jethro is worshiping the one God, 
and he's of a whole different kind of line than the Abrahamic line. So you think he thought Moses was like an idiot son-in-law, like most father-in-laws? I would think that when he left and then came back with hundreds of thousands of people, I would have had some issues. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's tough to put all those people up. <laughs> so I mean, I think so. There's some biblical, you know, from the Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament, and I, again, Wolf, I would highly recommend that editorial. It, it's it's quite worth reading, and uh, I've only skimmed his book, but it's it's a very very thoughtful approach to the subject. So from that perspective, you could say, okay, there, there can be a biblical case. What else? You know, I was at, this is kind of a, an aside, but I think related. I was at a meeting at the Scriptural Reasoning Group, which is theologians and biblical scholars from the Abrahamic traditions, Christians, Jews, Muslims, who read each other's sacred texts and try to do interreligious dialogue around the sacred texts. I remember one of the Jewish scholars at the meeting saying, you know, it's interesting we're the only group that didn't start supersessionists. He asks, hey, Christianity comes along and says it's sort of, it's the successor, it's got the fuller revelation that Ju- Judaism needs, you know. And then Islam comes along and says it's got the fullest revelation. So we didn't kind of knock somebody else off the block. So we've got this kind of different animating spirit. And I think that that is interesting. I mean, it is. You know, you see it in Maimonides, the great medieval Jewish uh, philosopher. Uh, I think it's right to say, you know, Torah. He was a Torah scholar and yeah. a philosopher. He kind of did what, uh, for Judaism, what Thomas Aquinas did for Christianity, kind of yeah. an integration of philosophy and theology. But he saw both in Christianity and Islam, you know, children of Judaism, and that he was thankful that uh, for him, most of the known world at that point worshipped one God. And he saw that as a positive thing. Yeah, and on a related note, it's interesting because recently a group of Jews uh, came out with a statement. Um, Orthodox rabbis came out with a statement, a group of them. No, it wasn't universal. I think it's 28 um, Orthodox rabbis came out with a statement that, that, among other things, acknowledges that Christianity is, not, is neither an accident nor an error, but the willed divine outcome and gift to the nations. That's that's very much in the some that's in the, in the I wonder if they didn't get some of that from Maimonides. That sounds that sounds a little bit like Maimonides language. Yeah, they go on to say that that in separating Judaism and Christianity God willed a separation between partners with significant theological differences, not a separation between enemies. Now, the statement does not mention anything about Islam and there was some commentary in the article I read about certain world affairs and things, but that's just an interesting thing that here yeah. you have Jews, despite some core theological differences, saying we we think that somehow God has raised up Christianity as a means of His yeah. own working in the world. Now, from a philosophical perspective, and I don't want to get I this. I want this to be more on the level of philosophy for dummies. And we 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 talked in earlier episodes about the idea of God's incomprehensibility. You yeah, know, that it's hard. You know that. God by nature is, you can't know God in God's essence. Right. right? Okay. That's uh, the un, sometimes it's called the unknowability of God, um, but that doesn't mean we can't have a relationship with God. We just don't really can never fully grasp who we're having a relationship right. with. Would you say that we have knowledge of God? Doesn't ever say that God's comprehensible. Right. Like, exactly. All right. So if we don't, you know, given that by nature God 
is not something we can fully grasp. It seems to me that in the realm not of at least possibility, but if not probability, that you know all of us are wrong about God. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, for instance, I'm sometimes not sure I worship the same God Joe Olstein worships. If you did, you would have a lot more money. <laughs> Yeah, so. <laughs> you might worship more, but apparently you don't have a lot of, a lot of faith <laughs> on certain stairs. I mean, not that, you know. Right. Now, so there we go. So uh, shame on me. But you get what I'm saying. I mean, for instance, like the oneness Pentecostals. There are a lot of oneness Pentecostals in the world who don't believe in Trinity. Now, are they a different religion than Christianity? Yeah, and also within religious groups, I mean, oftentimes, you know, it's easier for a liberal Presbyterian minister and a, and a liberal rabbi to get along than a liberal Presbyterian minister and a very conservative evangelical-leaning Presbyterian. Sometimes it's interesting because sometimes we wind up uh, feeling more kin with people who we share certain cultural or political oh, right, convictions, yeah. <laughs> even if they're outside our tradition. Show me, sh- trust me, I got caught in that cross- crossfire, <laughs> so I, I knew what it was like to be shot at by everybody on that one. So, so there's a sense where we 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 have within Christianity, within the people listening to this podcast, the the vast different approaches to God. And again, some of it's piety, some of it's temperament, some of it may be theological nuance. But you know, we all can't be absolutely right. And I think um, you know, a good theologian is a humble theologian, and therefore, you know, we need to be open to the fact that we are are potentially and probably wrong about an awful lot. So to me, just in the realm of, of what we don't know, um, seems to me that we want to leave the door open. Even, even for the most, I, I don't know, exclusive Christian, you want to leave the door open for all the stuff you don't know. I mean, we don't know who those other flocks, you know, Jesus was talking about. Oh, yeah. And I think that, like, this is the interesting thing, because in, in the 20th century, probably, in Christian thinking, there's been this recognition that, and probably due to the work of people like Karl Barth, that Christology has to really shape, your understanding of Christ has to really undergird shape your understanding of God. That... Jesus isn't just some instrument of salvation. He is God in the full revelation of God. And so, you know, things things like this that have had to be rethought, a lot of people think, are things like, can God suffer? You know, or and, right. and things like this. So I think that for some people, there's this, the, the Christocentric piece mitigates making generous statements like that. But there's a guy who works for InterVarsity Press, David Cogden, who, who wrote a nice little piece, which I'll put in the show notes, is on social media, but about how these things aren't intention, because what you what you recognize in Christology is mystery at the heart of it. What is it? Jesus is fully human, fully divine. What's that mean? I mean, yeah. so even the revelation is mysterious, so that, you know, there's this phrase, Christ plays in a thousand pr- places. So you, I think most Christians should be able to accept that there are revelations of the triune God, not as the triune God. You know, Karl Barth said God can speak through a communist manifesto, a, a flute concerto, or, or a dead dog. You know, like, uh, I, I take the latter two references to be Mozart and cynicism. Uh, but, you know, like, right. so there, these, you know, there are always extraordinary means of salvation and revelation 
in scripture and the history of the church, you have people that have visions and things like this that are later. So I think we also ought to expect that God's re- revealing himself and working in ways that we don't perceive, understand, you know, or, or ha- always have the framework to interpret. You know, and I think, too, from the Gospels, if we work under the presumption that the Gospels were written to the church. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair uh, assumption. Then what do you make of Mark's constant pointing out that all the people closest to Jesus don't seem to understand what he's talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the I think the, the one of Mark's punchlines is that be careful. Those of you who say you're followers of Jesus may not really understand what he's up to. Um, again, I think. I mean, again, you can't reduce Jesus. I, I always am a little nervous when people know exactly what Jesus would do or say in a given situation because the people around him didn't know exactly what he would do or say in any particular situation. But the idea that Jesus said those who are not uh, against us or for us, I think that opens up some some room for, again, a kind of, uh, uh, at least to be in the generous spirit of Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't you know, Jesus had days he wasn't quite as generous, but I think uh, on most days we can be we can attempt at some of that generosity. And some of the things also, uh, on a, a side, like it's one of the things that I think speaks to the historical reliability of the New Testament. Like if this was an ideological track, I, I would have made the original followers look a lot better. I would have too. Yeah. <laughs> I would have cleaned a lot of stories yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, it almost goes out of its way. These people are really. I believe if you spend any time in the church, uh, these look like what most Christians look like. <laughs> lots of ambivalent days and lots of adventures and missing the point. Yeah. You know, we've talked about that parable. I think we've mentioned it before in a podcast where, um, you know, the, the, the steward goes out and hires people uh, and some work all day. You know, some start a couple hours late, some come in at noon. Some come in just an hour before closing time. And when it comes time to pay, he pays them all the same. And, of course, the people that were there all day, you know, complain. It's not fair. But he said, well, I gave you what I told you. You know, I gave you the wage that I was going to give you. You know, in other words, he kind of, you know, the the, the punchline is God gets to be generous as God wants to be generous. And the late, uh, uh, the late great professor, Dr. Dodges Allen, and his interpretation of that parable said that God only has one thing he can give any of us, and that is God's self. Hmm. And so that's the only real gift that God has to give us. I mean, as Christians, we believe that gift uh, has to be mediated through the person of Jesus Christ. But how God chooses to do that mediation, again, to me, is partially in the realm of mystery. I mean, for instance, the salvation of the repentant thief on the cross does not fit into almost anybody's theology. And yet, Jesus, that's the one person we know it's in heaven because Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the only guy that we can be 100% sure is there. Yeah, and I I think that, you you think too of Jesus' last words in all the Gospels, in the book of Acts, I mean, they're they're go, but but go and be my witnesses, not go and render judgments. Like yeah, right. <laughs> so on some level, like that, it's not part of the church's job description to to re- render kind of final pronouncements. It's it it's a call to bold, 
humble, joyful witness to the love encountered by, you know, the love encountered in the revelation of God, not just in Jesus, but as Jesus. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have mentioned this story numerous times, but I was uh, doing a, a well project uh, on a, in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, and uh, there was this very poor mosque that allowed us to go across their grounds because we were trying to get water to a little school and we were working with a uh, kind of a he was a lay iman, they, you know, they have like a lay pretty lay iman, but he was a principal uh, of these rural schools, and he was trying to bring water to schools so the girls would stay in school, because as girls got older, it became more difficult for them just to go out in the bush and and uh, go to the bathroom. So they were trying to get running water in all these schools so girls would stay in school. Uh, this project, by the way, was being led by, like I said, a lay iman, a person who filled in when the iman wasn't around. And at any rate, we had this meal, and it was this poor village, And uh, but they gave us a feast, the, the elders of the village did. And the uh, young iman who was sat across from me, who's, who get, let us cross his ground, was sitting there, and he gave me a part of an uncooked kidney of a lamb as a sign of friendship, I think. Uh, at any rate, it was, uh, it was hard to get down, but I got it down. And someone With told friends me, like that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, who knows? It may, you know, I thought maybe it's some sacred culture. It might just be a joke they play on Westerners. But at any rate, but someone told him that I was a, you know, a religious leader as well as he was. And in English, he looked across and said to me, God is God. And so I, I, I think that's something that, you know, we as Christians, that's part of our affirmation. God is God. We get to say that uh, not because we have a family relationship, if you would, to the uh, special revelation given to a certain people, but because we have been grafted in, we have been adopted. And, I, you know, Paul certainly says, you know, in Romans uh, 11, we should be more humble, those of us who are Gentile Christians, which would be about all of us, more humble about our belonging to God. And I certainly think this that humility should be brought to this discussion. You know, there's this great story. It, 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 I, I, don't, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I've heard it through a couple of sources that Billy Graham was in China, I think, and was, uh, or was it in China? It was somewhere in Southeast Asia. But he was going to dialogue with some monks, and he saw a, a monk meditating on the side of the road. And of course, you know, what's Billy Graham going to do? You know, shares the gospel <laughs> with him, right? So that's, you know, what else would you expect? And as he was coming back, you know, down, he was coming back, leaving the monastery, this monk went up to him, kind of re rejoicing, and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, thank you for what? This Jesus, the one you told me about, I've always known him, but I never knew his name. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty powerful. You know, and I, I have to say that my interactions, I've, I've mentioned before uh, how much I've been, have been, been a, uh, um, benefactor. I'm having trouble speaking today, last day of the year, but uh, how much benefit I've gotten from my um, walking with my Jewish colleagues and brothers and sisters. And I have to admit, I've learned a lot about prayer from just being around my Muslim brothers and sisters. And, uh, you know, um, whether or not the Nation of Islam, again, that's a whole other subject, but I can tell you right now, uh, some really faithful and courageous things are being done in some of our worst neighborhoods uh, uh, with people who other ones have given up on 
by folks who who call God Allah. So, you know, it doesn't feel to me at all anyway that I'm compromising my wholehearted commitment to Jesus as Lord, to to work with these folks, to learn from these folks, and and when I have the opportunity to pray with these folks. Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You say, one love, one life. When it's one need in the night, one love, we get to share it. Please, you, baby. Whoa!